0: Thank you for listening to the Faith-Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. Today's sermon for the 12th Sunday after Trinity, August 22, 2021, is preached by Matthew Johnson. If you have questions or comments regarding today's message, please call the church office at 612-824-5527 or visit our website at faithlutheran-aflc.org. Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Then we're going to go down to verse 39. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. All right. The town of Kideon in Cyprus. I'm sorry, be seated. The town of Kion in Cyprus had been hit by an earthquake again. It was as though the island felt the stress of being held by two sovereignties, both Constantinople, the Eastern Roman Empire and the Caliphate Islam. It was like it cracked under the pressure. 860 years after the resurrection of Jesus forever changed the Mediterranean world, the very ground had shifted of its own accord. Now the townspeople were digging out the rubble, some of them recalling that this particular heap of rocks was rumored to have once had a church at some point in the distant past. Even as they dug, the shovels and careful hands removed some stones and brushed away the dust to reveal an inscription on a sarcophagus at their feet. The Greek inscription said, Lazarus of the four days, friend of Jesus Christ. Now, that brief account is a mixture of legend, tradition, and historical fact. Uh, To my knowledge, it is actual historical fact that the Lazarus inscription was found on a tombstone in Cyprus around 890 A.D. Uh, That is supposedly true. And even today, there are supposed pieces of Lazarus everywhere. Some of him remains in Cyprus, some was taken to tradition, and. uh, by tradition to Constantinople, to Marseille, and some as in Russia, supposedly. But before all this tradition and legend and pieces of someone who supposedly died around 75 AD for the second time, uh, there was another original tomb that Lazarus left. If the scripture is to believe, be believed, he walked out of it called by the very voice of God. We're going to try and answer some questions today. What does John's account of Jesus' final pre-resurrection miracle tell us about the nature of God? What does it tell us about ourselves? What does it tell us about the redemptive work of Jesus? All of us here have said a prayer, perhaps even an unselfish prayer, that what went unanswered, and I suspect that at some point all of us have said a prayer for a friend or a family member that that got well. You know, they were sick, you pray for them to get better. I still joke with one of my friends about the special power of of Lutheran prayers. Uh, Because years ago, our congregation had prayed for her nephew, who was uh, brand new to the world, and he had a lot of problems. Uh, He's better now. Uh, But you and I know that that's not always the case when we pray for someone to get better, is it? Even in our text today, we see Martha giving a somewhat polite rendition of, God, where were you? I needed you. Did you know? that God isn't under any compulsion to leap up and come running whenever we call. While we have multiple commands throughout Scripture to call on God in any and all situations, while it's stated very clearly that God cares about our personal needs, his timing is his own timing. If it is to his eventual greater glory to delay a request for now and come after we would have liked, uh, we see at least here in our text that it's biblical to conclude God may choose to at times delay. But we must also remember that delay is not the same as abandonment. Now, another characteristic of God we see here is more strongly implied than openly said. Uh, That is, when God comes to our aid, it is at a cost to himself. Now, hear me out, because that sounds on face value a little funny. Uh, In a literal sense, Jesus is taking his life into his hands when he goes to Bethany. Uh, This gospel tells us that the Jewish leaders have already tried to kill him three times. And at this point, we're about a week away from the triumphal entry. So it's winding down a little bit. And in verse 16, we see Thomas stressing the danger. He says that we may die with him. I could be mistaken, but I don't think Thomas is talking about dying with Lazarus here. Uh, I believe he's referencing the real danger Jesus is putting himself in by willingly going to a certain geographical area close to Jerusalem. Jesus, of course, knows his time hasn't come yet, but with a lack of hindsight, we can understand why his disciples are a little nervous with the plan here. And that's in a literal sense. Now, in a spiritual sense, when God comes to our aid, it's at a cost to himself. But we'll touch on that later. Just don't forget that part. Now, the chapter opens with news that Lazarus is, quote-unquote, ill. Uh, The Greek word there is a little more intense than ill. It's more along the lines of deathly sick or even sinking. And if you're on a sinking vessel, you need help now, right now. Lazarus hasn't just caught some seasonal flu here. His sisters have sent word to Jesus that the man is about to cash in his chips. So Jesus directly encounters our human problem in verse 17. Lazarus is dead. First century Jewish burials put the person in the grave on the day of the death. So he's been in the grave four days. He's expired. Rigor has set in, and disgusting things have begun to happen to what's left of him. So what put Lazarus in the grave? Sickness, illness, sure. But you know what? He would have expired anyway. Ten days from John 11, 30 years from John 11, someday. Tradition and legend suggest that he died again at the age of 60 in 75 AD that makes him in his late teens, in John 11. Uh, His age is pure speculation, but the point is whether or not it comes for you on day one, or day 36,274. Death never gets tired of looking for you. Death will never forget about you. Death never stops coming for you. And why should it stop? It's part of us. We deserve it. We earned it. We've all heard the verse, the wages of sin is death. Wages, payment, earned. Our world is full of worldviews that suggest if you do good, you deserve good things. I think of this every time I hear a commercial say something like, you deserve a break today, or you deserve a secure future, or you deserve to know your family is safe. No, I don't. I don't. You can imagine what fun I am to watch TV with. But when we get down to it, You and I have earned a spot in a cold, barren hole in the ground with no ability to leave it, and we're beginning to smell. Fortunately, we have this Savior and this beautiful written account of his attitude toward death and how he deals with it. I suspect that Jesus timed this visit out pretty purposefully as to there being no question about Lazarus being dead. Uh, Jesus is already a renowned healer at this point, and healing is not going to give him an excessive amount of glory but raising the dead. That's been done before by him in Galilee, but resurrection never gets old. Resurrection is never forgotten, it's never mundane, it's never trivial. And the person doesn't get better, they are restored to life. Now, brief side note here. If you enjoy Bible study, I would encourage you to get a Bible name dictionary. Every name in scripture has a meaning. Some of them are rather profound, some of them are uh, not profound. But Lazarus is a version of Eleazar, and it means he whom God helps. This is an interesting intricacy of the text. This is where the meanings of the names of whatever story you're in can be, oh, that's kind of neat. See, Lazarus is himself in this text, but in a sense, he is representing you and me. Isn't it interesting that the helpless guy who's dead in the ground, his name means the guy whom God is going to help it's just an interesting detail now Jesus's first words to the grief-stricken individual is your brother will rise again and then he explains to her how starting with two things every dead person needs and note they are stated as two separate things he says I am the resurrection and the life so whoever believes in me though he die yet shall he live The word die in verse 25, the Greek is past tense. Someone much smarter than me helped me with these details. The Greek is past tense, so this is really saying, though he was dead. And the phrase with life, the yet shall he live, it's a present participle expressing that it's a continuing to live. So another way of saying what he says is, whoever believes in me, though he was dead, he shall continue to live. And also notice the importance of belief here. Belief in Jesus and the truth of his words and his work, uh, it's pivotal when we're dealing with death and, and new life. So let me touch on belief with a real world example so we don't trivialize the concept. Do you remember the old, uh, the other Lazarus in the Bible? The one in the story with the rich man and they both dying? It's Luke 16. But how the rich man begged Abraham to send a resurrected Lazarus to his brothers so they'll repent and be spared of the wretched fate he's experiencing in hell. Do you remember that story? It's a terrifying story. It's not a parable. People don't have names in parables. Do you remember what Abraham told the rich man? He said, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Christopher Hitchens was a rather famous atheist. He's dead now, so he's not an atheist anymore. But talk about a guy that just came across as an arrogant, boorish, pompous jerk. He's a real piece of work. I I watched a debate he was in once. It's on the existence of God. And be careful if you look him up, because he's, he's clever. He's not right, but he's clever. So we gotta be careful. But there are questions at the end of this debate, which I hate to say, he, I think he won the debate, from what I saw. But someone asked him if his view on the supernatural would be changed if he was presented with someone who was resurrected from the dead. You know what he said? He said he would conclude he was hallucinating. The questioner even doubled down as if Hitchens hadn't understood the question, said something like, no, I mean, you know he's dead for sure, then you see him again alive, and he's talking to you. Hitchens refused to acknowledge he would react in any other type of way except that he was hallucinating, and when presented with factual, irrefutable evidence. So let's remember that as we talk about belief in the face of a powerful miracle. It's tempting for us as believers to think that personally witnessing a clear miracle is enough to convert anyone. It's not. So moments ago I was emphasizing death and its role in both your life and mine. Did you know that Jesus never gets tired of looking for you? He never forgets about you. He never stops interceding for you. And why should he stop? He loves you. He understands you and your death problem so much that he took the problem upon himself because you and I couldn't handle it, and he purchased you at immense cost to himself. Now I mentioned the potential physical cost to Jesus' well-beings earlier, and that came to nothing, in the sense that Jesus was not seized and murdered in Bethany a week before Passover. It was a risk at the time, but nothing came of it. In later chapters of this Gospel, we reach the point of the whole narrative, the point of this whole big thick book we call the Bible, and he voluntarily offered himself up and paid for your death with his own, and then he resurrected. And 1 Corinthians 15 was read earlier today. It emphasizes us to the importance of this. If Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and so, and you are still in your sins. And also, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. If he did not do it for himself, it's not going to work for you and me. And so we have the Savior showing up after having purposely delayed outside the grave of his friend, openly declaring why he waited to show up. Verse 42 says, On account of the people standing around, they may believe that you sent me. That's a little simplified and abbreviated, but that's the end game here. Because miracles are great, but they're pointless if their end result is not to stir the heart to belief and repentance. And to reemphasize earlier in this gospel, in 629, Jesus even tells us the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. And then he calls the corpse by name. And if he hadn't used Lazarus's name, who's to say how many dead people wouldn't have sat up? And Lazarus walks out. An interesting detail here, and then we'll wrap up, no pun intended, because I want to touch on the grave clothes. Lazarus is alive again, but he's not actually free, is he? Jesus has to give special instruction to unbind him and let him go. He's tied up in his grave clothes. He's alive, but he needs to get untangled. Are you hindered by your grave clothes, my Christian friend? Even when Jesus restores us to life, something in us deep inside wants to hang on to the death with whom we are so well acquainted. That sin for which you never forgave yourself, that particular sin that keeps coming back in your life, Time after time, that tiny seed of doubt that ignores the fact that you were dead and now you're alive. Now, I need everyone in this room to stop pretending to listen to me and to actually listen. If you retain anything from my babbling up here, retain this. You do not intimidate Jesus with your particular sin. Jesus walked on water. He healed countless people with his word, and with his hands and with his spit, for goodness sake, in one particular case. He multiplied loaves and fishes, he removed demonic creatures with a spoken command, he raised the dead, he himself was dead, and he was raised up. You do not intimidate Jesus. He's not up in heaven looking down, clasping his hands and saying, I could handle the redemption of mankind, I just wish I knew what to do about Steve. Or death and resurrection, no problem, I just wish Liz could stop doing that one thing. Or my personal favorite, when is that idiot Matthew going to stop screwing up? I've had that imaginary conversation. I I have. The Bible is the most amazing book ever written. It's intricate and interwoven and detailed and intimate in a supernatural way. It conveys articulate truths, openly stated, and others are, are buried for the discipline of study. Don't you think if there was a way we could interfere or ruin the eternal divine plan of salvation that this Bible of ours would explicitly tell us so? I believe it would. If our sin was a problem for Jesus' redemption work, that would be stated. The Bible's not afraid of telling a hard truth. There are some doozies in there. But guess what? It doesn't say we can screw up the salvation plan. We can and do struggle with sin in this life, but never doubt, my friends, that after the work of Jesus is gifted to you, that it's your sin, old and new, vile, disgusting, embarrassing, horrifying. It's your sin that is dead and buried, not you. Amen.